I'm Barbara Bray. Welcome to my Rethinking Learning podcast, where I have conversations with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and change agents. Well, I have someone I've been wanting to talk to for a long time, Tanya Gilchrist. So glad you're here. Hi, Barbara. So, so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I love it. And guess what? She's in Japan. <laughs> That's right. I am. So it is uh, in, in your future right now. I can tell you Tuesday's looking good. Things are good here. <laughs> <laughs> it's Monday here. Monday yes. evening. It's early morning there. And um, it's so nice that we can connect like this. I'm so glad you're here. So um, are you okay? I'm going to start kind of boasting about you. Or, are you oh. ready? <laughs> Bring it on. I'm flattered. <laughs> <laughs> so Tanya is a, an internationally experienced educator, a presenter, consultant, instructional coach, and curriculum specialist. Is that all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, just, just a few things, a few hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we didn't say we we're going to talk about coaching, but that's one of my big things, too. So we're going to talk about that, too. Um, so you currently reside in Tokyo. I've never been there. Now I know I can come and visit someone. Yes, come anytime. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you would love it. It's truly such a special city. And I, I mean that genuinely. I'm just in love with this city and this country, with Japan as well. So um, you should absolutely come visit. We'd have a lot of fun. <laughs> I can't wait. Well, while you're there, you're serving as staff developer for the Aaron Kent Consulting. Is that, I don't know that. We're um, going to talk about that in a little bit, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll definitely dig into that. Because I don't know, because they specialize in amplifying inquiry across reading and writing workshops and effectively utilizing the workshop model in host country languages. So do you speak Japanese? You know, I do not. I, I mean, I know <laughs> a handful of phrases to like be polite and get by, you know, how to say thank you and excuse me and things like that. But I do not at all speak it in, in any shape or form fluently. So um, the great thing about Tokyo is you can, I guess it's a good and bad thing for me. The good thing is you can get by with just English. There's so much that's translated into English and a lot of people know English and things like that um, when you're in the city. Now, if you were out in rural Japan, it would be very different. But um, so that's good. That's helpful. But the bad thing is then it's so easy that even though I've been here almost four years now, I haven't learned the language because you don't need to. So, hmm. um, you know, I work at a school where all my coworkers speak English. And when I'm consulting, I'm traveling to other schools around the world where those staff, the primary language is English. So you you don't need to. And so you're busy doing other things and then you don't learn it, which it's kind of a shame because I'd love to know the language. I just haven't had haven't had the time. Arigato. Yes, you got it. <laughs> I know a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was going to say welcome, Tanya, but I'm going to say arigato. Oh, I'm learning. Welcome. I know a little bit. Um, I try to learn a little bit of every language, but uh, not enough to really converse. So that's something down the road. I want to learn more um, different languages. But living there, that would probably prompt me. So. Um, <laughs> I first before we get into why you're there in Tokyo and all the other stories that you have, I always like to have you go back and kind of give us a your background and you know your family and how a little bit about growing up and where you grew up. Yeah, so um, sure thing. I grew up in Northern Virginia, um, 
and the Shenandoah Valley, which if any listeners out there haven't been, they should definitely go. I know, I know I'm biased, but I think it's just gorgeous. It's a beautiful, beautiful area of the U.S. So, um, uh, where I grew up, it's about an hour from Washington, Washington D.C., about an hour's drive. Uh, and I was born and raised there. Um, all, most of my family was right in the area as well, either in Virginia or West Virginia. So um, I grew up around lots of cousins and aunts and uncles. And I have just one sister who's about two years older than I, and we're super close then and, and now. But um, even my cousins were like, siblings because we were always together playing and going on adventures and doing things. So um, that was wonderful having that family support growing up. And then when uh, starting from about the age of seven, my dad raised my sister and I. So that, that was definitely a big part of my life growing up. A big thing that shaped me was just having him be such an important presence in my life. Um, And I think it definitely made him and my sister and I uh, extra close, like just really being there for each other and just kind of being one one unit together. Uh, and he he actually died when I was um, just about to graduate university. So that was super hard as well growing up because mm. he was so important to me. He was my dad and my best friend and my minister. Um, I think, I mean, he was my example of servant leadership and still an example that I strive to to emulate today. So um, that was a huge experience that shaped my life and definitely has has been something that has led me to, to, I think, be able to um, think more about what students are going through in their own lives as well at young ages. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when you go, we all have our stories, we all have those things we've gone through. And once you go through them, then, you know, that's where more and more empathy can come from. So, yeah, so I, uh, once I graduated college, I started teaching. Well, before you go there, (laughs) I want to talk about a few of the things that you mentioned. One, I grew up in Maryland, and I used to go to the Shenandoah Valley all the time, and I love it. So I have to say there is a little bit of a connection. The other, losing your father so young and that tight, I mean, that's really hard. Have you, you know, how do you and your sister's you know, your sister, do you work on building oh, yeah. your relationship closer now or? Definitely. And she, she lives in the, you know, you know, like really gets yeah. it because he was her father too. And she grew up, you know, he raised her too. And so even, you know, well over a decade later after losing my dad, we still have time, you know, those conversations where you're both just in tears crying, you know, and I know that anyone who deals with grief of losing a loved one, you know how that is, you know, it's, it ebbs and flows, but it's always there, you know, and sometimes something will happen. You hear a song or you watch something or just something and you're just falling because it's like the grief is right there again. So fresh. So um, it's definitely something I still deal with daily. Um, What's your sister's name? Her name is Tabitha, but she goes by Tabby. So we call it. So it was, we were two T's, Tabitha and Tanya, and we uh, call her Tabby. So. Yeah. Well, I have three sisters, and one thing I found is that we share history. Exactly. So, I mean, we have different perspectives. But right. We share a history. <laughs> exactly. And so it's very special to have a sister. 
It really is. Absolutely. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that, but I love that area. Growing, I grew up in Bethesda. Uh, oh, yeah. So you weren't area. far away at all. Yeah, no. No, we yeah. probably, I'm a little older than you, or I would have probably <laughs> bumped into you. I, I, you, do you know, I went to Walter Johnson High School. Do you know that? School? I have heard of that. Yes. Yes, I have. Yeah. Now that's so, so there's cool. a little bit. Small world. <laughs> yeah. And now, I now today area. you're in, are you in California? I'm in Oakland, California, right and, outside of San Francisco. So it's just so cool how the world works that, you know, you're in California and I'm in Tokyo, but both of us have roots back um, I, on the East Coast. Yeah. You know, it's very interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen pictures of you. I can't tell if you have red hair. Oh, well, that's, that's a whole nother, that could be a whole nother episode, Barbara, the, the shape of Tanya's hair, because I, um, I dye my hair often and I'm always changing it, doing different things. So right now it's red, but That's in, what I thought. <laughs> in some of my pictures, it's more strawberry blonde and some it's blonde, blonde. Sometimes, I mean, I've done everything. I've even done really kind of crazy colors like purple and pink and, and blue. Oh, how fun. Um, yeah. And they accept it in Tokyo, right? Oh yeah. Cause they, yeah. I've seen people around. Yeah. All the caught. time. Yeah. So you grew up in uh, North Virginia. So what was this? What was school like for you mm. when you were growing up? Yeah. So I definitely had truly incredible teachers, and I think that's a big part of what made me want to be a teacher and educator. Um, from about the age of, I think it was third grade, so I was probably around nine. I just decided, like, I want to be a teacher because I loved my teachers. Um, and and then it stayed with me. I kept wanting to be a, an educator and went into education. So I had um, an excellent experience in that sense, but I had really supportive and fantastic teachers that, you know, built relationships and, and were caring and really built like positive classroom cultures. So that aspect of, of education was good. I think something looking back now, reflecting back, that was uh a challenge and still affects me even today was I for sure had perfectionist tendencies and I still am challenged by that at times. And I think that really uh, affected a great deal of my childhood and my adult life because I was putting so much pressure on myself and it wasn't coming from anyone else. You know, as I mentioned a bit ago, my dad was just phenomenal. He was wonderful. So the pressure wasn't from him. I think it was more just from the school, like, I guess, one way to say it might be society, but more, I guess, just the systemic nature of school, you know, that if I wanted to do good, you know, that means getting all A's. That means, you know, doing everything perfectly, that that's what quote unquote good is. And um, so I really put a lot of pressure on myself and, and I was able to do it. I was a straight A student and top of my class and all of that. But um, in so many of my areas, personally, as an adult, like other areas of my life, I feel like that really left a mark and not necessarily in a positive way that then you're always feeling like not quite good enough, you know, or um, not being able to embrace your imperfections. And I think that's something that's really affected what I want to do now as an educator, because I don't want other students to have to feel that pressure. You know, I think that's why I feel so strongly about inquiry-based learning and the workshop model that, you know, really should be more about the process than the product, you know, that it's not really about whether you get an A plus at the end or a hundred percent or whatever. It's about what did you learn along the way? Like that's what education is. That's what learning is. So 
I really think we've we've come a long way, but I think there's a lot more to do because I think there's still a lot of students out there who feel like it, it all comes down to what mark they get at the end instead of it being about the process and the joy and the curiosity. Well, the, I'm a perfectionist, so that's why I can really relate. We've got a lot in common here. Um, that's one of the reasons. And my son was, in fact, I even got him into play therapy when he was six because he would erase the paper so much that it would get a hole in it. He was the stress on him. And I find myself always, I felt growing up that I was, that you know, I wasn't good enough for something too. And I don't think we're alone in that, um, especially because of the uh, tendency to encourage compliance. Exactly. And, and so um, I'm like, I, I think we're on the same track, just going in a different directions a little bit, <laughs> the way we're doing it. But um it's this idea of knowing that you're okay. Who you are is good, right? And it's finding how to find who you are and become the best you can be and not compare you to other people. Um, so I, I love that you're working on that on yourself, but also applying that to your work. Yeah, something you just said, Barbara, really struck me where you said not comparing yourself to other people. Because I think that's still a big systemic issue that we see in education. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure all the educators out there listening have seen it where when students receive reports, you know, and there are a lot of teachers who spend hours and hours of their time these days writing like detailed comments for reports and things like that. Like we're trying to improve the system, but it's still at its root has a lot of problems because at the end of the day, the kids get that report and they don't even read the comment. They look at the score. What did they get? And then the very next thing they ask is their friends, what did you get? And then they compare themselves. You know, it's always about, it's, it's still at its root, this idea of it's the end product that matters and how did I compare it to, to everyone else? And that will let me know, am I good or am I bad? Instead of it's it, you know, it is, of, it's horrible. Uh, like it really, it gets me fired up because it's like, this. that's not how it should be. Like, that's not learning. None of us would think that that's, you know, that's not education. That's not what we want. You know, we want kids to be curious and to be risk takers and to be inquirers, and they can't do that if they're petrified that they're not going to get, you know, this certain score at the end. So there's there's a lot of, we've come a long way, I think, but there's still a lot more to do in, in thinking of how, how can we shift the educational culture so that students really, truly, genuinely feel comfortable to be risk takers and to get a little messy and to, because that's, that's where the magic happens. That's where they're going to learn and grow. Um, is through that exploration. And like you were saying, that's how they're going to discover who they truly genuinely are, like their authentic selves. And, um, and as far as what we want for their future, for their lives, like that's what creates a lifelong learner, you know, that it's not the end product, it's the process. I'm sitting here writing down all your quotes. (laughs) (laughs) It's just amazing. You're saying everything the way I, you know, I, I I so believe this is why I've been doing this for so long. The um we had, you know, in the United States when we had no child left behind, the there was a push just to teach to the test and they got rid of kind of all the fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and now we're trying to bring all of that back. We're looking at maker spaces and in fact, um I'm not sure what it's like in Tokyo, but they're even looking at changing the spaces. So, and there are some amazing schools in Tokyo that there's one kindergarten. I don't know if you know which one I'm talking about, but it's a circular kindergarten that is amazing. And um, 
if it, I can always send you a link if you haven't, yeah, or you can go I'd see love it. To, I'd love to. Yeah, because I, I it's have just to. amazing. Oh, wonderful! Oh, yeah, I know. Cool. Uh, you mean I can send you something <laughs> yes, about Tokyo? Tell me somewhere <laughs> to go and a new a new thing to see. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not quite as familiar because the, so the school that I'm at and where I'm coaching right now as a literacy coach, it's um an ID school, which is the International Baccalaureate Organization. So it's um I mean it's wonderful, but it's it's an international school, so it's different from like a Japanese public school. It's uh, more like a, a private school, basically. Um, and it's high school? Uh, we're actually um, pre-K through grade eight. So, and oh, I really? And I work primarily in the middle school right now with grade six through okay. eight. Yeah. Before we got there, <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say about your journey to become an educator. I mean, you said you always wanted to be one. Where did you go to school? And Yeah, so I, I went to... Um, School, uh, as far as uh, high school, I was at Warren County High School, which is in Front Royal, Virginia. Um, again, right in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, Front Royal is actually one of the starting places of the Skyline Drive, if you're familiar with the Skyline Ooh, Drive, which is another <laughs> gorgeous, gorgeous uh, thing to do and see in, in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, and then I went to university. Um, I first went to the University of Virginia um, had a, in Charlottesville, had a great experience there. And then I went to Shenandoah University, which is in Winchester, Virginia. Um, so um, that's, that's where I went to school. And I started teaching in Frederick County, Virginia, and um, had a great experience there. I, many times I talk about how I think I was a little bit spoiled <laughs> with my first school because it was like I had incredible administration, incredible leadership there. Um, I feel so blessed because I think they taught me so much about what it means to be, you know, an educational leader. And having that experience right off the bat with my first year's teaching was just phenomenal. But then that was hard to live up to, you know, then when going other places and switching schools. So it was an interesting experience. I was there about, um, I guess, four four years, I think. And then I met my now husband and he's from Texas. And so we did the long distance thing for about a year um, and realized, okay, this is serious. And, you know, there's something real here. So we knew we wanted to live in the same area and see where things go. So I moved to Texas at that time, um, the Fort Worth area. And I taught there in Northwest ISD and met again, wonderful people there, wonderful colleagues, wonderful leaders. So was very blessed in that area as well. And I taught there, I think, also for about four years. And then it was at that point, my husband and I both, of course, had always loved to travel. We did a lot of traveling throughout the U.S. and also internationally. Um, so that was always there. You know, we kind of, we at times talk about like, wow, it would be so cool to live abroad, but you'd never actually think you'd do it until, honestly, Barbara, I'd gotten to the point, you know, you mentioned a bit ago, um, what was happening in U.S. schools with all of the standardized testing. And I often say standardized teaching as well, because that's how it felt. Like all the joy is sucked out, all the creativity is gone. And I was really struggling with that. Like I really was hitting a professional low where I just, I felt like I could, it wasn't, it wasn't joyful anymore and learning should be joyful. And, you know, again, I'd wanted to be a teacher since I was in third grade. So this was absolutely a passion of mine, but I was just, I was having a hard time with, all of the focus on testing, 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 that I was 
literally Googling, like, what else can I do with my teaching degree? I mean, that's how bad it was. <laughs> um, and then that's how I discovered um, internet, the whole world of international teaching. So my, I, I talked, you know, we had a lot of long talks with my husband about like, you know, all these different, the more I explored and the, the deeper I dug and you'd read lots of interviews and reviews with other teachers. And then I found out about the International Baccalaureate Organization and I started researching into that. And it's all inquiry based and all about, you know, process over product and all these things that I was just like, this, this is what, you know, I need. So we were like, well, let's just do it. You know? So I started applying to jobs. We really kept things open. We were like, well, I'll apply all over and we'll just see what happens. And I got several interviews um, and several offers, but we initially, what we ended up going with and deciding on was Thailand. So we first went to Bangkok, mm. Thailand. Um, wow. And it was just... When was, uh, when was that? Um, let's see. I guess that was 2013, I think. I believe, yeah, okay. 2013. Um, and we were in Thailand for two years. Um, and it was just phenomenal. I definitely recommend it. Um, the islands are stunning. Just you feel like you're, you can't believe it's real. Like you're on a postcard and this can't be real, but it is. Um, and, the, <laughs> and the students there and the people there, just everyone are incredible. So that was a wonderful experience. And it was exactly what I needed at that time because it was like a, a breath of fresh air. You know, I was given my agency and autonomy back um, to really have uh, say, uh, voice and choice in how I wanted to teach, you know. Of course, there were still high standards, but you had that creativity and that joy back. Um, so that was wonderful. And then, and we initially thought, Barbara, when we left, that we thought, well, we'll do this for like, because most, most international schools, most, will start you off with a two-year contract. And then after that, you can decide if you want to renew each year. So we thought, well, we'll do two years and then we'll come back to the U.S. But we loved it so much. We were like, no, we want to see more. And, and you know, this is just wonderful. So then uh, at the end of that two-year contract, we did the same thing where we applied many different places. And then we ended up in Tokyo. And we weren't sure how long we'd stay here, but but we absolutely adore the city. So so you've been there four years now. Yes, we're, in our, we're in our fourth year. Yeah. Wow. So, and it's it. the same school. Yes. Yes. So I'm at um, Tokyo International School. My husband is actually at a different school. He's at the Canadian International School because uh, he actually was inspired so much by what he was seeing at um, Tokyo International School. He, he started subbing there a little bit. Uh, his background is in web design and graphic design. But since we were living abroad, it was becoming more and more difficult with especially not knowing the Japanese language. To, to find work on, on that side of things. And it was becoming harder and harder to work remotely like he had been doing with places back in the U.S. So I said, well, why don't you just sub it at my school for a bit? Um, it, you know, for now, why you just do some contract work with design firms and things? So that's what he did. And he just fell in love with it, fell in love with teaching. So then he went back to school, got his teaching degree, and now he's a fourth grade uh, primary years program teacher at the Canadian school here in Tokyo. So we're at different schools, but both working in education. Yeah. So what are you teaching at the school? So I teach, uh, yeah, I teach a few sessions of uh, middle school language and literature um, with grade six and grade eight. And then I also serve as the middle school literacy coach. So 
I have kind of a split role, a few sessions teaching and and then coaching. And I really like that in, in my previous experience in the U.S., I had some times where I was coaching. I, I worked as a literacy coach and also a technology coach. Um, and in both those instances, I had times where I was full-time just coaching. But I actually really like having this experience where part of the time I'm in the classroom because um, I think it keeps me grounded. <laughs> and then, you know, coaching, as, as I'm sure you know, because you mentioned um, you have experience coaching as well, it's such a relationship. It's all about relationships. So um, I think it helps keep those relationships authentic when it's like you really know what it's like too. Like, you know, you're you're still writing reports and lesson plans and you're still dealing with this and that and all the different things that teachers go through. So um, that's been really nice. I'm glad that I still have the opportunity to have a few sessions that are in the classroom. That's valuable. Yes, so valuable. Mm -hmm. And and what's unique about my situation as well um, is I'm coaching not just in English language and literature classes, but also in our Japanese language and literature class. So in that class, those are native Japanese speakers, and the class is entirely in Japanese. And as I told you, I speak no Japanese. So it's been, um, it's been so wonderful, though, because it's been very affirming for me of what I believe about literacy, which is that it's, the skills are transferable across all languages. And I think so that's, that's another area I'm super passionate about is what are we doing in education to really honor all languages that, you know, it's not just about English, all language should be respected and, and kids can apply their skills. For listeners out there, it's, uh, there's a term used called translanguaging, and there's lots of research and um, articles and books to read um, regarding it. And it's just fascinating, the research that's been done and what we see in that if we really want to help students as they're learning new languages, we need to make sure we respect their mother tongue or their native language, you know. And when you really think about it, it's like any other skill. Like if you were learning to cook, maybe you want to get more into baking. And if you said, well, I have this awesome, you know, vanilla cake recipe that I make all the time. And it's like the one thing I know how to make. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Well, I'm going to teach you to make chocolate cake. And you're like, okay. And so you start to get out some eggs and flour. And if I were to tell you like, no, Barbara, stop. Like, what are you doing? I haven't told you what to do yet. Like that, that would feel awful. You'd be like, no, I, I do know this. Like I already have this background knowledge. I know that cake in general needs some eggs and flour, you know, just because you're now learning a different type of cake doesn't mean all those skills are forgotten yet. That's so awesome. Oh, that's a good right? analogy. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, really. That's what we do to students when we tell them like English only, like only use English because I want you to learn English, but they have this whole wealth of skills, all this, this toolbox of skills from their mother tongue. And we need to honor that and let them use that. And that will help them learn their new language because there are so many transferable skills. So yeah. Can I just say one other thing? Um, It's also the culture. Yeah. I mean, if, if we just tell English only, (laughs) um, (laughs) they have this beautiful culture and background and history and everything is there that they bring in. So when you talk about cooking, it's completely different. Yeah. (laughs) Except we have, you know, we have, Japanese food here, but it's not like what they have right. there. Totally. Yeah, no, culture yeah. is a huge piece. You know, your language is, is a part of you. And I think, um, I think if, so if we disrespect their language, then we're really disrespecting a part of them, you know? And so I think, 
I think, too, I've also, um, in conversations with others as well, we brought up, you know, even what you were just saying, the whole cultural aspect, like how we how we can even present that when we have new students, you know, like instead of saying, okay, everybody, um, you have a new student come who maybe doesn't have a high level of high level of English. And you might say, everybody, this is George. He's joining our class. Um, he doesn't speak a lot of English, so you really need to help him. And we think like totally that's coming from a good place. We're saying something like that because we want George to be helped. We want people to care about him. But actually, I think we need to stop and reflect how does that make George feel, you know, that he's no, he doesn't know anything. He's now in this English class and he doesn't know any English. But instead, if we were to present it like, everybody, this is George. Um, he's just moved here from like, France. Um, so he is fluent in French. So if you want to learn French, like you need to come and talk to George because he can teach you some French words, you know, ah, and then you present as, as like, now he knows something. And from, from the get-go, he's not this, you know, because like we were talking about, we can, students often feel this pressure on themselves to be perfect. And so we can set up a lot of students to feel like, oh, well, I don't know anything. I'm not any good at this because I don't know English or whatever. And we know as adults, that's absolutely not true, but the student might not recognize that, you know, Oh, that just brings up something because I'm. We've been talking about bias and lately, and some of the Twitter chats, and when even our books, our textbooks in the United States are biased. That this is the only way to teach, and only thing you should know is our culture. And unfortunately, we've kind of. I don't want. I don't know if the word is denigrated, but we kind of pushed down what people believe and made them feel bad of their own culture and their language and everything. You're right. It's. Yeah. That brings up a, a whole nother, you know, we've had, we're having this conversations about different areas of, you know, there's, there's so much growth that we continually see in education, which is a good thing, but there's still so many sort of systemic problems that are hard to get over. And I think that's a big one that you just touched on is we, we say we want our students to be open-minded and to acknowledge different perspectives so we need to make sure that we're doing that as well, you know, that we're leading by example and creating the opportunities for them to see a, a vast array of perspectives so that they can learn from them. But I'd like to learn more about the t- translanguaging because that's new to me. Um, it'll be good to put some links and maybe some information so people can maybe do a little more research on it themselves. Absolutely. And I can tell you um, a great person to uh, whose work to read and to, to look into is um Ophelia Garcia, and we can definitely link to some of her books and resources because she's done some awesome um, just research and, and studies into it. It really is fascinating. I've never even heard of it, so it's great. For <laughs> See, you taught me some things. I See, love we're, it. We're lifelong learners always. Like, I feel like I'm always learning things, and, and you know, and we want to share that with our kids, too. I think anytime we're working with kids in the classroom, you know, letting them know things that we're still learning, showing them that we're always learning, you know, that again, they don't have to be perfect. You're learning every day. Well, that's one thing I want to bring up. It's that expert type of, they made teachers feel like they had to be the expert in the room when actually that kind of encouraged that perfectionism because we tried so hard to be that person who knew everything. The idea now is you, no one can know everything <laughs> That's right. and you can learn so much from our kids, right? Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that's why I'm so drawn to the workshop model and to inquiry-based learning, because that's what it's really about, you know, is showing the kids that 
you're a learner too. And yes, you're there as a coach, you know, to help them, but also you learn things every day with them. So something that we often talk about with others when, when I'm working with them, collaborating, whether it's consulting or coaching, is this idea of even little tweaks that can make a difference. And one of them that you just made me think of is instead of presenting a teaching point at the start of a lesson, um, opening up the learning with a question instead. And so you could look at the teaching point or objective that you would normally use, but instead think, how can I make this a question? And I think right, just that little thing totally transforms the atmosphere of your classroom because now you're not the sage on the stage, you know, telling your kids, this is what we're learning today. Instead, you're asking them for their thoughts. You're asking them to get curious. You're asking them to start thinking. Um, and then if you really genuinely do that, then you're going to learn a lot too, because I can tell you <laughs> so many times the kids surprise you and they take it in a way that you would have never even imagined. And you, you do truly learn so much through them. You know, these things, the, the new perspectives they bring, the new things that they bring to the table that you wouldn't have even thought of. And it ends up just being such an incredible learning experience for everyone. Well, um, as a literacy coach, and a consultant that what you're doing is you're modeling this because they probably there's a lot of teachers still have those you know they only know what they know and don't know what they don't know they've been brought up you know they taught in their own school as a learner and then in a teacher education that they're supposed to be the sage on the stage really exactly and so here you come in and I mean how was that when you first showed up and said it's just kind of shook up everything <laughs> yeah I think yeah, no, uh, you bring up such a good point that, um, so I think, again, it's so important, like for any coaches out there listening, like, or any aspiring coaches, especially, because I'm sure those who've already been coaching for a while will be like, yeah, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. But for aspiring coaches, I would say, you know, really make sure that you establish strong relationships from the beginning, because I know that was something I learned. I went in when I first started coaching back in the U.S., you know, you go into it and I was so excited to do it. You know, I was so passionate and you think I'm going to do this and do that. And it's going to like change. It's going to be amazing, you know? And then um, that doesn't happen because you often face resistance. And the reason you're facing resistance is because you're not really respecting that other teacher. If you haven't formed a relationship first, you know, um, mm -hmm. just, just as you and I feel passionately about certain things we do as teachers, they feel passionately about what they're doing too. And so um, I think a big piece of it is remembering that it's about the students. Um, so I'm definitely a believer in student-centered coaching. So going into it and instead of making it about the teacher and what they need to change, that's not what it's about. Um, it's about what do your students need and how can I help you think of new ways to do that or do different things or get you resources or, you know, that you're really there as a support. Um, and you have to establish that relationship first for them to see that, that you're not there as an evaluator, you know, when you come into their classroom, it's not for a formal observation. Like you're not there to judge them. You're there to support. Um, you're there to help the students. So, and once you really establish that relationship, then when you're co-planning together and you're co-teaching together, um, they know that you're there to help the kids and you're there to help them. And it's, it's not about um, judging their teaching at all. And I think if you really establish that um, atmosphere, then it takes the pressure off. And, and the teachers realize, like, yeah, this person's a teacher just like me, and they're here to help, and that's all it is. It's not, um, it doesn't mean that the person you're coaching is any less of a teacher. It, you're there to help the students. 
So I know that you said that you honor agency, which is so true for teachers too. Mm -hmm. They do have to have their own voice and own what they do and feel comfortable with you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to respect that they have their own style. You know, they have voice and choice and, and they need to own what they're doing. Absolutely. It's so important that we respect that. Well, I just, I feel like I've known you forever because <laughs> it's like so many of the things that I, you know, I believe in. It's just wonderful, especially knowing about your consulting. So I'm going to have to follow you more and talk to you again and definitely get some of the blogs that you've done, put them, put some links to them because your blog is just amazing. Oh, thank you, Barbara. Uh, um, no, I really enjoy, you know, I've always loved um, reading and writing, like in addition to teaching and serving, you know, literacy is a big passion of mine too. So I really enjoy writing. So the blog's a lot of fun and I feel like it's, you know, a great outlet for expressing some of the thoughts we've just been talking about, you know, things that, especially since I know we're both really active on Twitter, um, I love having a Twitter PLN and growing together and you'll often see things that just spark an idea where it's like, oh, you know, I have things, so much I want to say about this and a blog can be a great way to do that. So I really enjoy just writing about um, my different like thoughts and passions. It's a great creative outlet for sure. Well, we'll definitely get some links and I get to uh, see you on Twitter all the time and I love it. So now I get you, now I know who you are. Yeah, now we really <laughs> know each other and that's what I love. Know each other. <laughs> I love that about, about your show, Barbara. I love how you personalize it because I feel like when I listened to several of your other episodes, exactly what you just said, like I already kind of knew this person like because we'd, see each other on, on Twitter and share different tweets. But then after listening to their episode with you, it's like, I feel like I really know them. Like I know where they're from. I know what brought them into teaching. You know, you really get to the more personal side of things. And I think, I think that's really important, you know, because we're people and we need to see each other as, as people first, you know? Well, it's like when you said the relationships, that's what I wanted to do is have these conversations. I'm learning and about the person because, um, you know, there's something you're very warm and very easy to talk to and it's fun, but I have never talked to you because right. you're in Tokyo. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, but I, but I have tweeted back and, you know, back and forth with you. And so I really could tell that you have this passion, which is just um, really comes through. And I'm so honored that you'd spent the time with me today. Oh, well, well, thank you. The honor is truly all mine. No, it's absolutely a, a pleasure to be here. I feel very blessed to get a chance to, through podcasts like yours and others, to share our passions. I mean, what a great opportunity that is, you know, to be able to talk about the things we love and the things we care about and share that with others. It's a wonderful opportunity. So thank you. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Tanya. And uh, we'll be putting this up and then get it out there with all these wonderful things you mentioned. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. So enjoy the rest of the day. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, you. I still have the whole day ahead of me here. So um, I will <laughs> enjoy and I hope you have a great night. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Tanya Gilchrist. Look for the complimentary blog post about Tanya, where we pull together resources and links for you. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and we'd love a review. 
You know, you can also subscribe to my website at barbarabray.net to receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.